You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR, and as I suppose was inevitable, I'm sitting here with Richard Marson. Hello, Hello Richard. Hi, uh, how are you? I'm good. Are you good? Yeah, I'm tottering on. (laughs) Tottering on. This is Richard Marson, BAFTA award-winning television producer and author of Drama and Delight, The Life of Verity Lambert. Ah, yes, the lovely Verity. My wife, uh, JR, kept accusing me of having an affair with a dead woman for the last year because it was Verity this, Verity that, Verity the other. She was getting slightly sick of me banging on the whole time about Verity Lambert. Oh, mine thinks the same thing about me and Doctor Who. She wants to know who this doctor (laughs) is. (laughs) Yeah, that's slightly more worrying. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably right. So we're here to, well, the book is out pretty much as we speak. Yeah. It's, um, we had to bring it forward because, um, the BFI fantastically wanted to, to do a kind of season of her programs and, uh, inspired by the book and tied in with it. So they, when they said they wanted to start at the beginning of April, we were planning to launch it at the end of April. So that meant that at the very last stage to, to get it to the printers and to get it kind of through, through that system, through that process, you know, in time was, more than a bit sweaty and there was some, there was a very tense week where you know not a lot of sleep went on because we were just you know you suddenly get all the final proofs and everything has to be checked and you know inevitably stuff slips through and you know then you're worried about are the printers going to deliver in time and it's a whole load of headaches but happily it made the deadline and well it must have been pretty hard work getting it together anyway because let's face it you did this part-time while you were doing your full-time job yes i mean it was you know it was an extraordinary uh feat of work which i'm if i sort of really thought about it beforehand because with john when i did the john nathan turner book um there were a few spells where i wasn't working on a tv project so i'd have like six weeks available to just do the writing or the research or whatever but with the Verity book, when I started the serious work on it um, just before Christmas last year, really, th- there was no point from that point to the point where I delivered the manuscript where I wasn't also doing a TV project. So that meant I was actually working seven days a week. Um, I know everyone's getting the violins out and thinking, oh, poor <laughs> you. But, um, but no, I mean, it is, you know, the thing is, is that it's just becomes very, it's not just physically draining, it becomes sort of mentally draining. There isn't room in your life for the normal things like kind of friendships and stuff like that, because every weekend you're working. In the evenings, you're quite often working. And in the day, you're literally doing the day job. So plus last year, I had a six week shoot in Spain. Um, shades of the two doctors. Um, <laughs> although I think they had about five days. But, um, uh, but, you know, being out there for six weeks meant I knew during that time I wouldn't be able to do anything to do with the book. So it all had to be really, really rigidly and ruthlessly planned to, to meet the deadline. 
So I'm guessing we're not going to get the Graham Williams book next after all. <laughs> no, somebody asked, weirdly, somebody asked me about Graham Williams. And I, I mean, I, I met him a couple of times back in the day and really liked him. I thought he was a very, very sweet man and very clearly very bright. But I think uh, there's always a story. I mean, most people have got a, an interesting story if you can find the, mm. if you can do the research and uncover the stuff. But I think his story is very sad. Um, yeah. So, certainly the way it went in the end. I think well, he was... retired down here to Devon to run a hotel. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it went terribly well. I mean, it's a very tough thing to do anyway. Um, and, you know, he was a fairly melancholic character. You know, he had a, you know, I don't want to kind of diagnose him as bipolar or anything like people would like to do now. Um, but I think he was very up and down. And I think he, you know, he was a very sensitive man. And uh, television is a very unforgiving and tough industry for anyone who has a degree of sensitivity. And I think he got out of it um, thinking, you know, I'll go and do something completely different. But that's equally tough, you know, to sort of change direction, by which point I think he was probably in his late 30s, early 40s. And, you know, to become a businessman and, and being a hotelier, you're on 24-7. So, you know, from what I know of his life and where he went, I think I think it would be it would be quite a sad read. But also a very good book. So you're definitely <laughs> up for that one, then. No, no, I'm definitely not up for that one. <laughs> At the moment, I'm thinking, you know, I, would, I mean, I definitely would like to do something again in the future, but I just don't know what it is yet. And it's too early to, you know, like I, I really sort of feel so marinated in verity that... Um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of out of that yet. Yeah, and, I, yeah. I, and I also kind of need to have a bit of my life back before I start to contemplate, you know, taking on the level of, cause I just, you know, I do love the research and it's really important to me to be as thorough with that as it's possible to be. Um, and so it didn't matter whether it was Graham Williams or whether it was your favorite auntie, you know, whoever I was doing the research for, I would still want to do a sizable number of, of, of interviews directly with sources as well as all the kind of written research and the kind of going back through mm. anything that's archival. Good job Graham Williams is my favourite auntie then, eh? Oh, remember Auntie Gray. <laughs> auntie Gray. Yes, so, well, I don't know. You seem obsessed with Graham Williams, Chair. I think do you know why? your favourite producer. Because, no, because when... It, when you agreed to do the Verity Lambert book, and obviously yeah. I knew pretty much from the start because I know Matt as well. Yeah, and he blackmailed me into it, as you know. Yeah. He and basically guilt-tripped me into doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, but yeah. I thought then, if you were to do a third, the one yes. that I'd be most, the one that I personally would be most interested to see would yes. have been Graham Williams. Because it's more interest. if you're a fan of a programme, it's more interesting to read about the bits where there's, more going on behind the scenes. And but I think that, well, don't you think one of the interesting threads of throughout Doctor Who's history, and probably continues to this day, is that uh, there is an awful lot going on yeah. behind the scenes. I mean, you know, it is a, partly, I think, because it was a high-volume show, therefore in production relentlessly, um, and uh, therefore chewing up a lot of talent and demanding a lot from the people who run it, or ran it, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, that when you do delve into the history, it's quite eventful. Exactly, yeah. I, I've written about that myself, actually, about that very thing. 
And I think that's one of the reasons, actually, why Doctor Who fans get so involved with the show, because there is so much, go- not just so much going on on the screen, but so much going on behind the screen. Yes, it kind of, definitely. It, it, it I sort mean, of it takes on a mythical quality. Absolutely, almost. absolutely. I mean, I can really clearly remember that I think that that was the first real reason why I liked the programme as a fan rather than just a, a viewer when I got interested in it. It was because it had came with this sort of ready-made... Um, fascinating, if you're interested in TV, kind of internal narrative. Mm. And, you know, we didn't know as much then as we do now. And it's extraordinary to me that there is still stuff to be uncovered and found out. I mean, one of the things that was um, looming in my face over the whole of the Verity thing was, of course, that a lot of the primary witnesses are now, if they're still alive, they're in their 70s, 80s and even 90s. The oldest, yeah. person, the oldest person I interviewed for the book was 93. And, you know, you are and was by no means the only person in their 90s. So, you know, you are talking about a generation who are rapidly disappearing. And yet there are still things to be discovered and and talked about. Well, in many ways, it was important. If if this book was going to be done, in many ways, it was important to just get on and do it. I suppose so. I mean, you know, certainly it was interesting that, you know, she had such an incredible career that the the number of people she worked with, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was hard to get a yes from a lot of people. They did want to talk about her. They wanted to celebrate her. Uh, and they all had a lot to say. I mean, you know, you know she was someone who um, certainly um, people had strong opinions about and, and a lot of memories of. So that's all good if you're writing a biography. You know, what, what you dread is someone sort of saying, oh, well, yeah, it was, she was all right, you know. <laughs> that, that didn't happen. And in fact, before, although Matt had been nagging me to do the book, I said to him that I wanted to do half a dozen interviews before I committed, just because I didn't know that much about her. And I wanted to just see, you know, was there enough, um, you know, m- enough story there? And it very quickly became apparent that there was a lot of story and a lot to say. So... That was very energising. Oh, yeah, because this is absolutely not one of those books, one of those sort of, you know, brick-sized books that you buy in airports that's talking about (laughs) somebody involved in television and is basically just a list of all the things they've done. This is a No, but having said that, it it grew. I mean, you say it's it's, it's a big book. It's bigger than the John Nathan Turner book, and that's partly because, I mean, I think there are 15 chapters, whereas John had 12, and that was partly because trying to compress a career like that into and find a structure for it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, it was quite a challenge because it was a very, very rich life and career. Yeah. Well, that's, this is what I want to do with this podcast, is talk about Verity herself. Yes. And obviously... Okay. Well, obviously... <laughs> True or false? <laughs> yeah, go on. But with it being a Doctor Who podcast, yes. you know, obviously I want to talk about her work on Doctor Who, but I mean, yeah. I've got her IMDb page up in front of me. And I mean, obviously being a Doctor Who fan, you investigate this stuff anyway, so you kind yeah. of already know what's on that list. But the list is enormous, and the number of huge, and not just um popular, not just successful, but also interesting programs and films she worked on is just incredible really isn't it and the one point i wanted to make before we get into talking about verity lambert herself Mm. is the difference between your two books one of them has doctor who as the kind of full stop at the end of his career and the other one doctor who is the first page of her career and they're both biographies of that career where doctor who is obviously a huge and intrinsic part 
because yes. because of where it comes in that career. Yes. But the difference between writing those two stories, one that begins with it and one that ends with it, that must have been interesting for you. Yeah, oh, it was. I mean, I think the fascinating thing to me is that Doctor Who continued to matter to Verity throughout her career, although she only spent, you know, that first 18 months or so on, on the show, it was so significant to her. And because she was in at the birth, she was the midwife to Doctor Who. She was yeah. the matriarch of Doctor Who. You know, lots of the things that were put in place or happened under her watch are the things that established, you know, what we still watch today. So I think she did feel a strong sense of pride and ownership, but not in a kind of proprietorial sense. I mean, she... She detested the John Pertwee era, I know that. But she would kind of keep an eye on it, and she was always open to doing fan events and interviews and, you know, and later on DVD commentaries and things. She never turned her back on it. She never looked down on it. She always thought it should be done very seriously. She she really didn't like what John did with it in the 80s. Yeah. She thought, because she thought it was being sent up, and she thought that was a disaster. In a um, way, if I like just cameras. break in... Yeah, but and also, if I just break in for a second, one of the things that I think was a big thing for her right back at the start, and that perhaps it lost, especially during the 80s, but maybe also during the John Pertwee era, is that if, you, if it's primarily for children, and it works not necessarily to educate children, but to shape mm. and mould them into being better people, if you take that aspect out of it, it's almost as if it loses its purpose, do you think? Well, I think that she she was always being pressurised by Sidney Newman that it should be educational in some way. Mm. Um, I don't think she took that on board in terms of kind of the, the factual side of educating people. But I think morally, you know, she was a very kind of politicised... Uh, in, she was interested in kind of philosophy and things like that. And I think you can see that in early Doctor Who, that there were ideas being expounded. Um, and the whole, the character of the Doctor himself is, you know, as we know, the, the first Doctor is a renegade. He's uh, anti-authority in lots of ways. Um, I mean, she has a, there's a wonderful quote from her where she says, you know, that the reason she objected to John Pertwee was that he was seen phoning up the Prime Minister in one episode, and she said if that had, if that had been William Hartnell, William Hartnell would have told the Prime Minister to cough. <laughs> you know, so that kind of neatly encapsulates what I think she thought. That she thought the Doctor was anti-establishment. Yeah, abs- yeah, very much. Look, the th- one of the things that people are always bringing up is... Yes. Verity Lambert gets her first producer's job after having been a secretary. And, but oh, PA, PA, to be fair. PA, yeah, yeah. But I was exaggerating for effect. Uh, well, to be honest, I think a lot of people even then regarded PAs as glorified secretaries, so you weren't too far off. Well, and the thing that people bring up is that, and there's this whole did she sleep with Sydney to get mm. the job and all this mm. kind of thing, but what people were kind of say about it is he saw something in her that he thought would mean that she would be able to do the job yes but 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 given everything that she did afterwards it can't really have been that difficult for him to see it and it was probably only prejudice within the bbc that meant there was any resistance to her going on this trajectory at all i don't know about that i think the thing that's interesting is that um she'd obviously worked in his department for some time and she'd worked and had a, lo- a huge love affair which of course goes, we go into in the book with Ted Kotcheff who was one of his most talented directors yeah. and, and you know he noticed her because she wasn't a kind of compliant quiet 
woman in the corner, as a lot of women were in the workplace then. She was opinionated, noisy, the famous piss and vinegar quote. Yeah. You know, she, she would argue the toss with him and he would say, know your place, be quiet. And she would say, okay. And then two minutes later, she'd be arguing the toss with him again. And I think that the fact that she had an opinion and the intelligence and wit to argue her case, these things lodged in his head. Plus, of course, she was... Actually, she wanted to be a director, but she was constantly hassling and hustling and saying, you know, I could do that. I could do that. Let me direct. And I suspect that actually his decision to sort of roll the dice and give her a go when he was at the BBC was partly because every other idea he'd come up with, every other person he'd thought of, either he didn't think they were right or they turned him down. So I think time was running out. And I think this was a sort of, as I say, a last minute roll of the dice. And you're right, that, that, you know, it absolutely caused um, a, a lot of noses were in the air at the BBC about the idea of this very young. I mean, that's the other thing. She wasn't just a woman. She was incredibly young. She was only 27. And, you know, that that marked her as being different from the start. Yeah. So on the subject of Doctor Who, how, because uh, this, uh, you know, this is something I've never quite got my head around perhaps but just how involved exactly was Verity Lambert in the nuts and bolts of getting the program together for example the music the music is absolutely famous for being so different from other tv themes of the time how involved was Verity Lambert in deciding that they would have something that different and you know same goes for things like the TARDIS set having the police box finding William Hartnell how involved was she in all these things? I think you, you cannot underestimate. I don't think there were any any major creative or organisational decision that she wasn't all over. Um, I mean, you mentioned the music. I think she had a very, very clear idea of the kind of, you know, she wanted it to be incredibly otherworldly and different and, and, and sort of really have that impact. And in those days, that was important because the signature tune was the cue for the audience to sit down and pay attention. But, you know, she fought Sidney Newman, who hated the titles. He hated the music, you know, and she just railroaded her way. And that was part of her strength. And, of course, she was very sexy. So she used that, too, if she needed to. She had a huge battle with the design department over the TARDIS and, and the building of other sets, but particularly over the TARDIS, because the designer assigned wasn't interested in the show. The design department was incredibly sexist and patronising to her. It's all there in the memos, and but also in her memories of it and other people's memories. You know, she had a real battle on her hands, but she was a very... I mean, this is a, um, a hallmark of her career. From the very beginning, she was incredibly clear-sighted and determined, and if she wanted to go for something, she would go for it. Famously, right towards the end of her life, almost the last thing she wrote before she died, she said that she learned from Sidney Kotcheff and Ted, uh, sorry, S Ted Kotcheff and <laughs> Sidney Newman, get, let's not morph the two together, but those two men were hugely influential and she learned that you don't have to take no for an answer. And I think in the setting up of Doctor Who, that was a kind of critical quality because otherwise it would just have been sort of blanded out and nobody cared about it enough for it not to have been sort of sidelined and, and swept under the carpet. But she cared about it, and she had a lot to prove. So she was determined it would be as good as it possibly could be. And that is one of the major reasons, I think, why the series was a success. The other thing you mentioned, the casting of William Hartnell, was that was absolutely her casting. And some people didn't agree with it or thought he wasn't a great choice, but the proof of the pudding is that the audience um, obviously took him to their hearts. And... 
and you know he managed to create a performance that for whatever you know retrospectively people might judge it for the fluffs and all the rest of it you know there was something about the aura of his performance that just connected with the audience and and that was it off the off it went he was absolutely the wizard of oz really in that yes program. i guess yeah yeah in those early days she for a very young woman who's in her first really sort of top job yeah she really did get these things done when it would have been so easy to just turn around and say okay fair enough if you're not going to do that okay but and and another example of that is no BEMs, and then you get the Daleks. <laughs> yes, I love the fact that when I spoke to Russell T. Davis for the book, he makes the point that when um, Donald Wilson raised his objections to the Dalek story and said he hated it and thought it couldn't be done, um, you know, Verity, other producers could easily have said, oh, we'll just do a quick rewrite and we'll make them, you know, wizened old scientists rather than monsters in metal casings. But, you know, he his theory is that Verity kind of had the hunch to, you know, and, and also believed in it, thought, no, we're going to do this my way. And, of course, she was right. And there's a wonderful memo in the BBC archive from Donald Wilson saying to her afterwards, you clearly know this better than I do, you know, and he kind of rather elegantly apologising. I don't know whether Sidney Newman did, but I know he was delighted by the fact that, you know, the the audience reaction to the Daleks to the BEMs was yeah. was you know not something you're going to quarrel with if if you if you were behind that show and so she was right she was vindicated yeah exactly and I mean as well she kind of um, as well as the the Daleks the, there are so many things going on in those early series of the show where she's kind of well she's in charge in a way that John Nathan Turner probably wasn't you can tell from her career afterwards that she understood the writing part of the process that's interesting i mean i think that she would have said that she learned on doctor who and on adam adamant that the script was the thing yeah. she'd come from armchair theater and she'd already been kind of um you know inculcated the, the whole idea of working with top writers was already something she understood but she discovered to her frustration that on these popular churn out series where you were doing an episode a week both doctor who and adam adamant you simply couldn't get the kind of one-off playwriters she did try she asked all sorts of people to write for doctor who and then adam adamant and they turned her down and she was left with the kind of people that were willing to do that sort of assignment which was you know let's face it seen as sort of cheap and cheerful and quite disposable yeah um, and actually the first the story of the first sort of 18 months of doctor who is a, a, a catalogue of problems with the scripts complaints from the cast about them you know struggles to get them right struggles to and i think she learned that actually everything starts with the script and in later years i mean her reputation as someone who worked fantastically with writers um you know tells its own story but i think in those early days she was more at sea and it was a fairly painful learning curve the whole business of getting scripts right for doctor who but that's where she learned it and she in a way she was quite lucky to get people like terry nation and dennis spooner who would come she in loved, and she loved Dennis Spooner because I think he was a lovely man, you know. Yeah. He, he was sort of sweet and funny. And also she liked I mean, she liked the Romans. I mean she she would have liked to experiment more. I think she saw the strength of the format of Doctor Who was that you could do a comedy one week and a and a, a historical drama the next. I mean, she loved that because it's very refreshing. 
but she was very sad that the, the attempt to do comedy was really absolutely rejected by the audience. Yeah. What but was that it? was Spooner. I mean, that was in, and they worked very well together. And she also loved David Whittaker because I think he was, you know, a kind, sweet sort of gentleman who didn't try and undermine her. He supported her. I mean, so although she did have people in the BBC who were very hostile to her, famously Rex Tucker, who was supposed to be the first director. Yeah. Uh, uh, soon realised that in the Battle of Wills she was going to win, so he bowed out. But I think that she was surrounded by other, these other men, Mervyn Pinfield, David Whitaker, later Dennis Spooner, who respected her and supported her. And I think that what they responded to, apart from her kind of personal charm and pizzazz, was the fact that she was very hard-working, very dedicated and professional from the beginning, and they knew that she was you know, doing the best possible job, and I think that's very invigorating. If you look at it, her greatest achievement, especially given all that you've just said, in those first two years of Doctor Who, and, you know, when we look at back at it historically, we see everything that came afterwards, and we see it all as one kind of parcel of yes. programme. But if you go back to the very start, when none of the format is really mapped out, when none of the boundaries are established, her greatest achievement is actually getting... 48 weeks of programming yes. on the air every week. Yeah. Or whatever. Well, you, know, you, will, you will be surprised to know that, um, you know, given that she was working for on a continuous run of, of uh, you know, the, all those weeks, that she was also suggesting during the summer break that she and David Whitaker could produce something else to fill the gap. <laughs> so, I mean, I think she was indefatigable. I mean, her, this is something that, again, stayed with her throughout her life. She loved life. She was someone who enjoyed partying and socialising and the rest of it, but she was also incredibly dedicated professionally and worked her socks off. Yeah. I suppose, actually, once you get into a pattern of working, maybe that break at the end of that first year, maybe she, she didn't want to break the pattern, because sometimes if you break the pattern, it can be hard to get back into Flaps, it. yeah. Yeah. She was also young and single. Yeah. So, you know, she, she didn't have children. She was never interested in, in being a kind of mum in that way. So I think throughout her career and starting, you know, at the very beginning with Doctor Who, she was able to dedica dedicate herself to it utterly. You know, other things didn't have to distract her. And although she loved a social life, that would often cross over with work, because as we all know, the BBC in those days, and television in general, was driven by alcohol, smoking, drinking, mm. shagging. You know, um, the social side of it was as important. Yeah, yeah. Given that it did, well, that it has now lasted for 51 years, albeit with that great big break in the middle. Yeah. And given just how little of a format there was back at the start, and I mean, if we look at it, let's face it, the story they intended to start with wasn't <laughs> the story that they actually started with at yes. all. So, I mean, it was very much in flux, even right yes. up to, even almost right up to broadcast. Do you think she, because when you, when you do start a story, if you have an idea that the story's going to last, you will kind of build things in, that will allow for that longevity. But those first two years of Doctor Who, that's not necessarily the case. So do you think that she saw it as a finite thing? Probably. I think it's, I shouldn't think many people foresaw that it would uh, run, you know, beyond, certainly not beyond probably William Hartnell doing it. I yeah, mean, yeah. At the point at which anyone thought it could continue with a different actor, I, I certainly don't think she had that kind of crystal ball. No but doubt. I think, I think, 
I think given how quickly it connected with the audience, I mean, it is extraordinary to think that within, I mean, the ratings for the first first story, which, let's face it, was a challenge in terms of the uggs and the gugs and all the rest of it. Um, nonetheless, they weren't bad. But the fact that once the Daleks came along and it took off, I mean, really pretty much was established from that point. So I think she probably thought maybe it's got five years in it. Um, but I also think she knew she had an absolute sense that she needed to get out while it was a success. Right. So that it, so that, you know, she wasn't, she, she didn't want to be there when it started to kind of take a dip. She wanted to uh, use the success, the phenomenal success she'd had with it to propel her forward and upward. Right. I was going to, I was going to come back to that in a second, but we're there. So, so she left of her, she resigned as opposed to the BBC saying, right, your time's well, up, we'll get somebody actually, else in. Actually, bizarrely, quite early on, they tried to move her from Doctor Who in the very, very first few months. And it was because they had a new soap starting in one of the regions. And the reason they gave her, she violently protested and said she didn't want to go at that point, because it was too early. And yeah. the reason the reason they were suggesting was that she was a single woman and it wasn't fair to ask a male producer who had a wife or a family <laughs> to relocate up to Birmingham or wherever. And, you know, she, I mean, she wasn't afraid of saying no. So I think she dug her heels in and she won that one. But you know, despite the fact that, you know, Donald Wilson was saying, you know, I can tell you to do what you like. And she said, yes, I know that, but I'm not going to do that. Um, and I think she left Doctor Who when she was good and ready to. And and by that point, she had already set to such. She knew the project, which became Adam Adamant. Yeah. Sidney Newman had been talking about it. And she very much, well, partly because I suppose it was logical. So the stuff she'd learned on Doctor Who, you know, to get to go on to a, a you know, a popular uh, a show that had a sort of science fiction fantasy element to it, but was aimed at a slightly uh, wider audience. You know, that was, I suppose, for her a logical step. Um, and so she was lobbying to do that from as soon as she heard about it, really. And although I'm of the view that she probably didn't have a full-on affair, and you'll see in the book that some people think she did, some people think she didn't, I, I think that she, you know, certainly used her um, uh, all her appeal, by which I don't just mean her physical appeal. I think she, you know, the fact that... Well, Newman knew that as well as being charming and sexy, she was bloody good and very ambitious. So I think he liked all of those qualities. And so I think she she made the most of that. Just one more thing about Doctor Who then, and we'll come back to Adam Adamant, because I think that's an interesting story about the genesis of that. But Doctor Who, just one final point on that. Yes. Those two years, although there's, you know, notwithstanding what I just said about it's not inbuilt into those first two years, the sort of longevity, the things that will allow for that longevity. There is a very definite format between the sort of historicals and the future ones. And obviously yeah. the sort of sideways ones were passed over pretty quickly because nobody knew what to do with them. <laughs> but within that format, and you sort of alluded to this a bit with the Romans, there's a huge amount of experimentation, especially yes. in that second year. Oh, yes. Is that something I mean, that, that would have sprung from her, do you think? Oh, I think she loved ambition in other people. So, for instance, when they did the Web Planet, although, you know, she was quite happy to acknowledge it didn't work or didn't quite come off, I think she loved the fact that, that you know, it was an attempt to be really different and to do something really brave and ambitious. She was always up for that. And in the same way, when Dennis Spooner was itching to do a full-on farce stroke comedy, she supported that because she thought, why not? 
Well, she'd already seen a little bit in the Reign of Terror how that kind of thing could work in the Doctor Who universe. I guess, I guess, so. and also, of course, she was, you know, once Dennis Spooner was her, you know, day to day colleague, he would have been lobbying for it anyway, because, I mean, that was, that was yeah. his thing, you know, that's what he, that was his stock in trade. Um, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about Terry Nation is that, you know, he was another of the people who didn't really want to do Doctor Who. You know, kind of, he was reluctant, and, it, you know, and of course, as we know, as history, history has told us actually it was as much to do with that brilliant design yeah uh, and i think the work that was put into his scripts i mean you know some uh, david whittaker um you know he he i think had to do quite a lot of work to flesh out some of the scripts um well i talked to donald tosh as well and he said um terry nation barely wrote a single word of dalek's master plan well i mean i don't know whether that's entirely true you know i mean you know he was there so who am i to know but if you look at the paper records you know sometimes these things kind of get exaggerated i think i think what people picked up on though from terry nation was that he wasn't doing it for the love it was definitely a job and uh, at least you know, a, a sizable percentage of the, of the success of the Daleks is down to the way they were realised. Yeah. The funny thing about Terry Nation is, in spite of the fact that it wasn't really something he had an affinity for or, some, or necessarily something that he particularly enjoyed doing, he kind of became intrinsically linked yes. with it so that it carried on throughout his career almost from well, that point. Well, and let's face it, he didn't do badly out of it. He was... I no. mean, there's, there's a wonderful thing in in the book... Verity um, realised early on when Dalek Mania hit and suddenly there was this huge explosion of kind of toys and spin-offs and things, all of which in the part of her duty was to to approve them and, you know, put them through the BBC process. And she realised very early on that other people were making absolute fortunes out of this, merchandisers and people like that. And she was still on her fairly paltry BBC salary. So I think, you know, that was kind of a harsh lesson in the realities of telly in those days. Yeah. So one thing that's just struck me before we do move on, Planet of Giants. Yes. That is kind of the story that had been supposed to start yes, the series yeah and yet and yet it happens a year later with a different writer is that because she thought i like that idea enough that i'll push it through anyway or is no. it me no yeah. i i suspect that that idea was was something that um those above her wanted to do Partly because it was, it was a, a, you know, uh, an attempt to use the technology of the time. I mean, it seems laughable now. The, te- <laughs> yeah. the technology is so crude, but, but actually, again, it was ambitious. And she, you know, she would have been supportive of the idea of doing something ambitious. And it was also very brave of her to say, this isn't strong enough. Let's cut it. But I mean, to cut a whole, whole episode. You know, I mean, obviously she'd have had to get that sanctioned, but but in order to do so, she'd have had to go in and argue the case for it without sort of shooting herself in the foot. Because I suppose the obvious question would be, well, if it's so slow and and you know boring, you commissioned it, you read the scripts, yeah. you know, you were at the rehearsals, why didn't you do something earlier? But I'm sure that she managed that effectively and got her own way. Part of being a successful producer, I mean, you're sort of partly. Um, a con woman, really, because you're sort of, you know, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. You know, you need to get the best possible show out there, and sometimes you don't want to draw too much attention to your to the methods you've taken to get to that point. And I think she was definitely uh, an advocate of, you know, a bit of subtle political manoeuvring to get her way. 
absolutely right adam adamant lives you've said oh, that yes. the, you've said that the idea already existed before she came aboard yes was that then <clears throat> something that she had as much involvement in setting up as doctor who and when mm -hmm. you say that that was a a series that she was attracted to just how easy was it for her to get herself involved with it, given that, you know, even though she had Doctor Who under her belt, she was still just a woman at the BBC? Well, she was, but she was one of Sidney Newman's favourites, and it, and Doctor Who uh, and Adam Adamant were both top-line ideas of his. I mean, I think the thing is that others were obviously involved in Doctor Who, and certainly in fleshing it out and putting the detail in there. Yeah. Uh, um, and that was true of Adam Adamant. You know, he kind of came up with... A, a sort of loose concept and a few headlines. I mean, originally he wanted to adapt Sexton Blake and turn it into, um, you know, Sexton Blake being dropped into 1960s London. And it was really a response to Mary Whitehouse, who was plaguing the BBC at the time and uh, talking about, you know, uh, old fashioned morality. And he thought, well, that's quite an interesting idea. Would someone from sort of with Victorian morality be genuinely shocked if they were dropped into the middle of swinging London? And that was the sort of genesis of the idea. But as with Doctor Who, putting somebody like Verity in charge, you know, she was there to actually deliver on it. I mean, there's a wonderful memo from Sidney Newman to Verity, which I quote in the book, where he says something on the lines, actually it's a telegram, I think, saying, I know that you've almost killed yourself trying. And she did. She had serious problems with Adam Adamant. Um, she'd wanted to do it hugely. She took it on. There were innumerable script problems. It was difficult to cast. And um, she said years later that, uh, you know, she she actually was having so many problems sleeping, she had to be prescribed sleeping pills. Wow. Uh, and she really did struggle with it. Um, and I think those struggles, it was not seen as a success at the time. It heavily overspent. Um, there were problems with recasting. One of the actors had to be replaced at the last minute through an injury. I mean, she really did have all manner of problems in the in the production and the planning um and and it's quite ironic that it became a kind of cult series and was fondly remembered but was not at in any way regarded at the time as a success either in terms of the ratings or the reviews which were pretty stinging wow but that is odd actually because now you look back and adam adamant lives is one of those series where you just hear the name and you, you it's got a kind of a legendary quality almost yeah but you know it's the power of nostalgia i mean yeah. we're we're old scrotes, JR, I hate to tell you this, <laughs> but we're, we're still young, we're still too uh, young to remember it. So the number of people who were around at the time who remember it, but if you look at the contemporary uh, reviews and, and certainly the internal uh, documents, as I say, you know, Adam Adamant was really seen as a bit of a stinker. Right, wow. Uh, there are so many things we could talk about, we're not going to be able <laughs> to talk about absolutely everything. But one thing that strikes me is that in between Doctor Who and Adam Adamant, she yes. did an episode of The Newcomers, is that right? Well, she, she launched it. I mean, she did more than one. She did the first um, first six or eight, I can't now remember. It's in the book. But she, she right. was asked, it was sort of a deal that, I mean, it was sneaky, clever. Uh, Sidney Newman said to her, you can do Adam Adamant, but uh, you can only do it on condition you get this soap off the blocks first for right, you. Right, right. And that was partly because she'd had the experience of doing a high-volume output, and she was strong at casting. I think very early on, and this again became the hallmark of her career, she was good at casting, 
and she put a cast together for the newcomers that included uh, people like uh, Jeremy Bullock and um, uh, uh, who was the the female lead? Uh, I've got. A, I had a senior moment. Um, oh, but, don't worry. People can uh, look but, it up. <laughs> but it, she went on to have a, a film career, um, and you know she was. She was good at spotting kind of up and coming talent and repackaging people who were perhaps kind of middle brow character actors or whatever and putting them in a role that, and that really worked. The newcomers ran for the best part of four years on BBC One. And, um, and you know, she put the, she, the funniest story about it is that she got Warris Hussein in to direct the first two episodes, you know, repeating the format of the formula for the beginning of Doctor Who, and he was furious because he was doing something else and didn't in the least want to be doing this soap opera. Um, but he said after a bit of sulking, he, he got his act together and did it with a good grace. Did they work together again afterwards? Oh, yeah, they worked together on her very uh, glitzy Somerset Maugham series, which was the right. reason why BBC dispensed with her services in 1970. She won a BAFTA for it, but they didn't renew her contract because the programme had consistently run over budget and there were various other issues. So that was a bit of a bittersweet pill. So he did one of those and then he worked with her at London Weekend and then worked with her at Thames, where, of course, the, the biggest project they did together was he directed Edward and Mrs. Simpson. Right, which won, yeah. won Emmy and the BAFTA and what have you. Well, we'll get there. <coughs> one of the things that strikes me... OK, looking down the list... Not that I really need to, because I know most of this list off by heart, I think. But <laughs> but one of the first things that strikes me is Budgie. Yes. Because given the things that she's done up to that point, that's although the things that she has done up to that point are kind of vastly different from each other, that's the first one that strikes me as completely different in tone and also possibly as a forerunner for something like Minder. Yeah. Bringing out a different aspect of her personality, maybe. Well, I mean, it's interesting. She she lost her job at the BBC and was had a few weeks. Well, I mean, she says she had a minor breakdown. She certainly had a very serious shock because yeah. everything had been going so well and suddenly she was out of a job. And uh, her great mate, Andrew Brown, who was at that point, had been a script editor for her on Somerset Maugham. He had gone to London Weekend um, and had got himself a producer job there. And I think it was almost certainly Andrew Brown who had sung her praises at London Weekend, which was a new and failing company at that point, and got and, and that got her a chance to go and meet the writers of this new series, which was then called The Loser. That's what it was going to be called. Oh, really? Um, and then until they decided that the, an audience wouldn't want to watch a show called The Loser. No. Um, and uh, she met Willis and, uh, and Keith, and, Keith uh, Waterhouse and Willis Hall, who were the writers and creators, and she thought it had gone disastrously badly because they were sort of very monosyllabic and they had this awkward lunch. But in fact, they liked her and she was given the job and, of course, flew with it and did incredibly well with it. And it's interesting you said about the minor thing. I think absolutely with hindsight, you can see it was perhaps in a family tree that went from Budgie through to Hazel, a series she did at Thames. And then Minder, which was at Euston. So, you know, there was, there was definitely this kind of idea of, uh, of these larger than life kind of cockney characters and the criminal underworld and the rest of it. She did get stick from feminist friends for doing a series that was quite misogynistic. And there's no doubt about it that that, that is if, if, if Budgie has a failing, it's that the characters for the parts for women in it are pretty bloody awful. Uh, and Budgie's wife is a drip. Uh, not, not, <laughs> 
I should correct myself, Budgie's uh, girlfriend is a drip. His wife is a fabulous character, played by Georgina Hale, um, from The ah. Happiness Patrol, if you remember yeah, her in yeah. that. But she, um, you know, she only crops up in two or three episodes. But So, you know, it's not without its flaws, but for her it was a very, very significant step forward because it was a big hit. Yeah, it wasn't just a big hit. It was quite influential in the 1970s because if you look at what Budgie did, actually even things like, actually I don't know the timeline so I could be getting this completely wrong, but things like Porridge and other programmes of that ilk that came, if I'm right, afterwards. Yeah, they did. Yeah, are, yeah are kind of born out of the fact that a programme like Budgie comes along and says, right, this can be a suitable subject for a mainstream television programme. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know whether there's a, a true link between between those sort of programmes. I think that Budgie uh, was a success partly because it had a kind of freshness. Yeah. You know, a lot of ITV drama, never mind BBC drama at that time, uh, was sort of still a bit middle class and a bit sort of... And it, and it also was wonderful for London Weekend because it truly reflected the region that they were meant to be. Right, so, yeah. you know, it was a proper London programme. Uh, but it was Verity's idea to cast Ian Cuthbertson as Charlie Endell, which was brilliant. I mean, the, everybody else wanted a, another actor. Um, but she said, no, no, he's the one. He'll, he'll do it really well. And she suggested that he did it as a Glaswegian. And that gave, you know, this wonderful contrast to Adam Faith. Yeah. Who was, you know, who was the little geezer. And Ian Cuthbertson's one of those actors who... A wonderful actor. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he, he immerses himself completely in everything. And he always always seems to me to be playing against type, if you know what I mean. Whatever characters he plays, you look at his sort of physical image and you think, yeah. well, that's not who you'd expect in that part. And yet, yeah, the way, and yet the way he does it, you can't thereafter imagine anybody else, can you? No, he used to go off uh, in breaks and filming, go back up to Scotland, and he'd come back with a, a brace of grouse to give Verity, who was an excellent cook, wow. and uh, and she would take these off and turn them into a wine, which was a great one for dinner parties and socialising and entertaining, and, and as I say, a very, very good cook, so uh, it, that would have endeared him to her even more. <laughs> right, the next big, big thing on the list, as you will know is the naked civil servant. Oh, yes. How involved was she in putting that together? Because that, by this point, she's moving into the area of being executive producer yes. as opposed to sort of regular... Well, she wasn't involved in the nuts and bolts of it in the sense that it had started life as a, a project for the BBC and the BBC had been too timid to do it. Um, and then it had done the rounds of every film company in Wardour Street, one of whom hilariously suggested that they would do it, but only if Daniel LaRue played... Um, oh, right. and Chris, and they made it into a sort of broader comedy. Um, so it, had, it was a bit dog-eared by the time it reached Verity's desk, but she read it and recognised its its worth and its merit, um, and was absolutely determined that, that Thames were going to do it, and she'd only just gone to Thames, and so it was very important to her that her first commissions were going to stand out and be, um, you know, sort of set out her stall. Yeah. So she took it to Jeremy Isaacs and said, look, I want to do this. And he pointed out that there wasn't any money to do it. And she said, no, I need, it needs to be done like now. We can't wait a year or two. Um, and he, greatly to his credit, found the money. 
and the pair of them had to persuade the Thames board, who were far from convinced. But again, she was someone who was never frightened of a battle. In fact, she liked a battle. She liked an argument. She was extremely fiery. You would not want to get on the wrong side of Verity, let me tell you. Yeah. And, and she used every power of persuasion that she had, and she got their backing. And then, of course, they had to deal with the IBA, who were not happy about aspects of it. Anyway, her role in the Naked Civil Servant can be summed up in the fact that she made it happen, and she yeah. got it through, and she protected, and this was her great skill as an executive, she protected the creative people for whom who were working for her, whether they were writers or directors, actors. She protected them from unnecessary meddling and interference and let them do what they were good at. And then, of course, the results speak for themselves. You know, Rock Follies, Bill Brand, uh, Edward and Mrs. Simpson. I mean, her record at Thames is extraordinary. Well, Rock Follies, Naked Civil Servant, that is another example of her being ahead of her time, I think. Or forward, very much forward-looking. Absolutely. Well, also, she just, I think she, you know, she didn't like... Um, drama that filled space. She wanted to tell stories that had some resonance and relevance to people's lives. She wasn't interested in something, for instance, she, she would do period drama, but she didn't want to do period drama just as a sort of exercise yeah. dressing up in frocks. She would have detested Downton Abbey, for instance, because she wouldn't have thought it had any truth or relevance. But, but, you know, uh, the period dramas that she did do all had some contemporary relevance or connection for audiences you know a slight analogy i used to write songs years and years and years ago and it always used to be oh, one of my tune. give us a tune no, no 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 but one uh, of my criteria would always be that the next one had to be better than the last one or at least move it on in some way well that's a good criteria for any creative work. well exactly i was going to say and verity lambert's career I mean, not her entire career, because, you know, there are times in her career when, obviously, she yes, doesn't have the autonomy that she would have well, had at other points. There's a whole chapter about El Dorado. Yeah. <laughs> where well, she her... say, I have to say, she said, if I'm going to fail, I might as well have had an epic fail. Well, yeah, but this is kind of my point, is that if she's not making the next project better than the last one, she's at least moving it on or doing something different with it. El Dorado, as much as it might have been ultimately a failure was an attempt to do something that was so innovative that perhaps yeah, it was destined to fail. Well, but that now... I think if they had their guts, they would, it would probably still be running now. Well, yeah. I mean, El Dorado, you know, there's, as I say, there's a whole chapter about it. It's a complicated story but and quite a fascinating one. But really, it was a victim of politics than mm. more than anything else. Um, and the fact that, that by the end of its run, it was getting kind of 7 million viewers. I mean, now they would kill for that figure. Yeah. You know, and these days, 20, 25 years on, whatever it is, there are an abundance of programmes which take that basic premise and that are really successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there were lots of good things about it, but it coincided with a difficult stage in her personal life and she wasn't as hands-on as she needed to be, really. And the whole story of Julia Smith and Tony Holland and how that kind of went slightly wrong or yeah. more slightly wrong and, and became, you know, one of the factors in it, in derailing it. I mean, it is actually, you know, it's a kind of, it's very much a saga of might have been and what could have been. One of the things she was really good at early in her career, and we, we sort of alluded to this a while ago, is assembling a cast. And yes. one of the really particular things about that is the chemistry between the cast, because you'll know as well as anybody, you can assemble a cast 
but getting them to work well together is a different thing entirely and she she's done that time after time after time she kind of whether it's an innate thing that she's not even aware of she had that ability to bring people together and kind of know before as she was doing so that they would work well and spark off one another i think she was very good at casting she she was had very good instincts in terms of actors but she was also good in the but once she got established in her career one of the other factors was that you know there's that phrase nothing succeeds like success and people were attracted to work on projects because of her involvement so i mean even recently uh hugh bonneville who's obviously been very successful he was asked why he did the series the cazalets and he said well one of the reasons was that verity lambert was the producer and you know she had this reputation that drew talent to her right there's a cut rewinding slightly to the uh 1970s still before we move into the 1980s because my yeah. god we've still got a lot of stuff to talk <laughs> about really rock follies is one of those programs i have to admit i've never seen it because it was well before my time but that's a program with a certain reputation Absolutely. And just as interesting. In and, uh, and a seven year lawsuit, which is also covered in the book, um, which was a very, which possibly one of the low points of her career. She does not come out of that with great credit. Um, but What's the, the background to that then? Well, the origins are that basically the allegation was that the idea for Rock Follies was stolen from the people who had it originally and, uh, take, and largely because of Verity not wanting them to be involved. And uh, eventually these people, with the help of legal aid, uh, took it to court and won. And so if you ever see uh, Rock Follies today, it has had to be retrospectively amended to credit the three actresses who came up with the original idea. And the whole of that chapter, which is imaginatively called On the Rocks, um, explores, well, unfortunately, the marriage also uh, the uh, court case coincided with the end of Verity's marriage, so right. it was not a great time in her life. But she doesn't emerge from it with great credit. But only having said that, you know there are very few people with her kind of career who who you know can have a completely blameless or faultless record. Um, but it's a very very interesting story that something that was so successful was subsequently really the source of a hugely litigious and difficult um, court yeah. case. Well, it's a case that if you're going to be successful and if you're going to have ambition, and especially in an industry where there's a lot of money being thrown about and a lot of people are kind of putting their lives into their work, you're going to have to step on toes, aren't you? Yeah, I think in this case she was amputating rather than stepping on toes. But, <laughs> but uh, you you know, it is a, it's, it's a story. It tells you a lot about how she was she was ruthless sometimes in certain situations. You know, Verity needed to be top dog. You know, she would not share. She was not interested in sharing control. And so in this case, she you see her in with the full force of of what could be her ruthlessness. Right. One last thing before we leave the 70s. And this is kind of to my in my mind, this sticks out like a sore thumb. But given that this is. Yeah, go on. But given that this is basically a sort of science fiction themed podcast, this is kind of back into our territory a bit. Why on earth would she be involved in a revival of Quatermass in 1979? What was the story behind that? The story behind that was that uh, she remembered the impact of the original Quatermass. And she liked uh, Tom Neal, Nigel Neal, the writer. She thought he was an original voice. And that was another project that the BBC were going to do originally and decided they couldn't afford. And it came to her. And she thought that it could be done 
it was her vision to do it as a, a television series, but also a theatrical release. Yeah. So they were done side by side and with two scripts and all the rest of it. Um, and she went into bat and got John Mills to agree to play Quatermass. I think she thought it was ambitious and different. She, it, when she was working at Euston, uh, where obviously there were bigger budgets and they were film projects, she was always looking for a range of work. I mean, that's why she, she, uh, you know, she would do Widows alongside Riley Ace of Spies, say, you know, very, yeah. very different projects, but they had to be sort of cinematic. And Quatermass, um, despite the fact if you look at it now, you'd think, oh, you know, obviously things moved on in terms of effects. At the time, she was trying to kind of do something that was really ambitious and out there. And in a way, I think it would have been a lot more successful had it not been for the, uh, you know, the timing of it, the ITV strike and so on. Right, because actually it kind of mirrors things that are going on in the cinema in terms of Close Encounters, for example, yes. which just come out a couple of years earlier, and it sort of fit, it fits in with that kind of uh, creative thinking that was going on at that time, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess. I mean, of course, the thing is that he wrote it, I think, in 72 or 3. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and so it had had, a, you know, the hippie stuff is a clear indicator. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That had happened a few years before, but... Um, I think she just, you know, she and her script executive, Linda Agron, uh, both had remembered the thrill of, you know, people thinking, it's, I suppose it's what we now call water cooler TV, you know, you've got to see Quatermass, and that's what they were trying to recapture. Yeah. Well, in fact, if you look at several of the things that she did in the 70s, and Naked Civil Servants, perhaps one, and perhaps Rock's Follies is another, she, she kind of, certain of her programmes then kind of have a, looking back to the past to get, sort of the gist of something that worked in the past but completely refitting it in a way that looks forward to the future i, I said a few minutes ago that her uh, projects are almost always forward thinking but at the same time when you're forward thinking you need to use the past as a foundation so that you know you've got something that works if you know I, what I, mean. so. I think she was just very open to the best way of telling a story so with what follows you know what was very pioneering at the time was that no one had really done you know, kind of pop videos as part of a drama narrative. You know, now it's 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 much more commonplace. Yeah. But that, but I mean, it owed something definitely to kind of Hollywood musicals of the sort of thirties and forties. But it had a distinctive. You know, I suppose everything is a is a um, you know a reinvention of the wheel. You know, the, who, who was it who said there are only seven stories? You know, but mm. but she was constantly looking for different, fresh, and challenging ways of telling those stories. And the next sort of big thing, well, there's a few big things in the early 80s, but one of them really that's interesting is Widows, because the game oh, yeah. is kind of a very forward-looking approach to making a television programme. Well, that was very much, that came out of the fact that she wanted a project that was going to have strong female characters. She was aware that a lot of the Euston Films material was quite macho and led by men, and mm. she was desperate, really, to find something that had... Uh, really strong female female characters. I mean, what's interesting is you would never be able to do, uh, you would probably be able to sell something like Widows, but you would have to cast well-known actresses in the lead roles. And, you know, that wasn't the case. She, she went ahead and her cast were all, all unknowns. Um, and so the impact of that series is, you know, it's hard to remember now. I mean, it just had a colossal impact. And they, she had been told by uh, executives, oh, no one will want to watch it except a load of lesbians. 
<laughs> and, you know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but people genuinely thought that women wouldn't want to watch other women and men wouldn't watch it because they would dismiss them all as a bunch of lesbians. And, of course, it was enormously popular with men and women. You know, it got 13, 14 million viewers, and it was just a really gripping thriller. Her other big, um, wonderful kind of uh, story about widows is that it was Verity who said to Linda LaPlante, in the original version... Uh, the women weren't going to get away with it. And, and Verity said, sod that. You know, I don't want to sit there watching six hours of this only to see them all caught. Let them get away with it. And, you know, she had to battle with the IBA and say, you know, uh, this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, but as ever with Verity, she generally got her way and it was much better for it. Do you think Widows was in some ways then a reaction to the fact that Minder was kind of coming to an end at this time because Widows <laughs> is kind of the sort of polar opposite of Minder in many ways. No, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I think it was a reaction to the, the, I mean, Minder was another of the slightly macho shows that Houston were doing. But in fact, Minder kind of sporadically continued after Verity left um, Houston. I think, I think Widows was a reaction to the fact that she felt she needed to put front and centre a drama that focused on women. Uh, Bear in mind, she'd done shoulder to shoulder at the BBC about the suffragettes and had become more sort of politically aware about women and women's issues, which was in keeping with the times. So I think she did feel a responsibility that she hadn't quite fulfilled in delivering a show that was going to have really, really strong female roles. And then she gets into a period where she's working in movies. Yeah, and dear, yes. Yeah, well, you look at the movies that she did, and although there's... Must you? They were pretty dire, most of them. Well, yeah, but, well, okay, but successful as well at the same time, mm-hmm. clockwise, and A Cry in the Dark was successful. Well, I mean, actually, the story of her, I mean, she, that was her sort of most miserable time professionally and personally, I think. And certainly, I mean, it didn't work for her, her film career. And A Cry in the Dark was her first sort of cinema verity production. It was part of her exit deal. Right. From, um, when Canon took over Thorny and I. They booted her out, basically, but the, but she negotiated an exit deal that, that helped her get that film set up. And it was a critical success, but it wasn't really a huge box office success. Clockwise did all right, but again, that was released the summer that she was let go. Um, Dream Child was a sort of critical success, but didn't make any money. And almost all the other stuff she did were, were complete, both critical and commercial disasters. So it was a very poisoned chalice she was handed. Yeah. And you can see why she took it on, not least because she was getting four times the money she was getting at Easton. But, um, it, you know, it was a very, very difficult thing. And that era, the British film industry was in so much trouble that I don't think anyone would really have succeeded. And then you'd think that she'd be licking her wounds as she sort of creeps not back to her. television. Oh, yeah. No, that wasn't very, very, she would never lick her wounds. She would be, um, she was too feisty. Piss mm. and vinegar, you see. So yeah, yeah. was right. His judgment of her character... You know, that's what, that's what propelled. She was also great. She didn't hold on to grudges and she wasn't one who lived in the past. She was very much someone who would let, if something hadn't worked, she would say, okay, fine, let's move on to the next thing. And then the next thing, well, not, not quite the next thing chronologically, but she comes back to television. Yeah. El Dorado is ambitious and that's a, that's a risky project perhaps to be involved in she said she said it was going to be her pension if oh, really it worked, if it had worked she yeah would have a pension because she would have made a fortune it would have run for years and years 
She um, didn't have any kind of inhibitions about going for it, did she? Oh, not at all. I mean, for her, that was the point. You know, there was no point in doing something cautious. The bigger the project, the more excited she was by it. And she would always be ambitious in terms of, you know, whether it was the casting or whether it was the budget or whatever. I think, um, I mean, Eldrada came four years into her career as an indie. And by that point, as an indie, she'd had big success with a couple of sitcoms, May to December, and So Haunt Me. And she'd also done um, dramas like Sleepers and things like that. You know, so she had she had kind of set out her set out her stall in terms of what she was doing. But El Dorado was going to be a game changer. If it had come off, it would have you know she wouldn't have had a huge amount to do with it day to day. But it would have kept the money rolling into Cinema Verity till you know to the point where she decided she didn't want to work anymore. You just mentioned May to December. I have very fond memories of that. It was uh, popular. I mean, I think it ran yeah, yeah. in a long time on BBC One. It was a real banker for them. Well, in fact, it ran so long. It, it, had, it was one of those programmes that had a major cast change halfway through the run, yes, isn't it? Yes, that's right. It's because I think um, the original actress, Eve, oh, what was the last name? Uh, she just decided she didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and so they, they had to recast, and they recast with Leslie Dunlop. Yeah. That is... That's her coming back to television, and that is an example of, well, in in my mind, that's an example of Verity Lambert doing something that looks really safe, but actually is completely the opposite. It's a a program about a relationship, which you would think that if she were to go into a television executive's office and say, I want to make this fairly sort of viewer-friendly sitcom about a sort of woman in her 20s and a bloke in his late 50s, that's the kind of thing you'd expect to be laughed out of the office for, and yet she turns it into something that is hugely, hugely popular. Well, it's interesting, because, I mean, he, the writer, Paul Mendelssohn, had a background in commercials. He hadn't written for television, really, before. Right. And um, it came to her the wrong way round. I mean, he actually pitched what became So Haunt Me to Verity first, and the BBC weren't interested. They said, oh, you know, you've got ghosts and, and that's never going to fly. And that, that didn't, that had to go into the bottom drawer for a few years. Um, and then he, and then Gareth Quendon, who was the head of comedy, said, have you got anything else? And that's when May to December, which was quite autobiographical, uh, based on that kind of writer's experience of, right. of life. But what was interesting was that I think her experience in shows like Minder showed that you can combine <laughs> comedy and drama very successfully. Yeah. And I think that May to December did cover subject matters that were, you know, you wouldn't be seen now as hugely pioneering, but it did cover all sorts of issues that were serious issues, you know, yeah, rather, yeah. Than, rather than just being kind of traditional sitcom fare. You know, on a side note, just for a second, Sleepers is another great example of combining comedy and drama. I love that's great. I it's love fantastic, yeah. and it has a wonderful, uh, sly uh, reference to Adam Adamant in it, uh, where you, you get a little moment where, when they're investigating the sleepers' past, you see Adam Adamant on the television, and I don't know whose idea that was. Um, I can't say I'd ever noticed that. Oh, I'll have yeah, to no, look out it? for that. And so that was obviously somebody's little in joke, but it's a really sweet one. That's another. Actually, Sleepers is another example of putting a cast together that, on paper, just looks ridiculous, and yet yeah, on she screen, was, she was faced with a massive. Originally, she wanted to cast Sam Neill in the Nigel Havers part. Right. She loved Sam Neill. He was one yeah. of 
theatrical actors. And uh, the writers were very against that and said, look, he's Australian. So she said, well, we'll have Nigel Havers. He's the English Sam Neill. Yeah. And they didn't like that idea either. And, and Warren Clark, who was the other lead, it had, the whole project, it had partly been his idea. So, you know, he also had an interest. And of course, it was all quite tricky. But once she insisted on Nigel Havers and putting him with Warren Clark worked brilliantly. Well, and actually, Sleepers does have a nice little Doctor Who connection in case people think we've got too far off the rails here because it was written by the uh, authors of that classic late Tom Baker story, Megloss. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting that I met both those guys to talk to uh, for the book and they said that their experience of working with Verity was far and away, they worked with her on another project too, was far and away their best experience in television. So. Really? Wow. And then we're into the sort of 90s and we're getting towards the end. There's uh, there's a few more things, but, I mean, we didn't Jonathan really want to... Creek. I mean, Jonathan Creek was... The, yeah, I was, was going to say it's the David Rennick programmes, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, Jonathan Creek's interesting because there she was back to producing a programme for the BBC that went out on Saturday nights with a maverick lead who solves strange mysteries, sometimes with a macabre hint, with a female sidekick you know i mean there were sort of obvious parallels with, with doctor who in some respects i mean it's interesting that i think uh, uh alan davis was one of the contenders to play the doctor when the program was revived um and that's you know and that was to do with the fact that he'd been so successful as jonathan creek well, yeah so, so oh, there yeah. was a was loved working with renwick and you know there was a kind of very satisfying end to her career in the sense that she was with a writer that she really believed in they did two series together. They did Love Soup as well. Yeah, that was the series she was working on literally until, you know, a few weeks before she died. Uh, she didn't see it go out. You know, it went out in 2008, the second series. Um, but, you know, she I love with Love Soup that she made it possible for Tamsin Gregg, who was pregnant at the time, to film it. And she put a clause in Tamsin Gregg's contract to guarantee her two breaks during the filming day to breastfeed her baby. <laughs> Bizarre. Not, not many of that's a woman you see yeah. and it wasn't a, she wasn't a mother herself but she I'm not sure many male producers would have had the imagination to say let's put that in her contract to convince her that we're serious about making this work right so, you know the really interesting thing about Love Soup is the differences between the first and the second series yeah well that was a disaster wasn't it because they lost their leading man between the first the, basically the BBC loved the first series commissioned a second and a 90 minute film to wrap it up where, right. the, where the two characters would meet and then weeks literally weeks before they started filming so everything was in place the actor playing uh, Gil got a leading part in an American show and pulled out and so they had a huge crisis but Renwick credits Verity because he, was, he says Verity was a glass half full and he was a glass half empty right. working with Verity had made him think more positively and so he came up with this idea of saying well we'll shoot 12 half hours instead you can do the first six which were the original scripts based around Tamsin Gregg's character and meanwhile I'll rewrite and we'll, and we'll get rid of him we'll kill him off they didn't do the 90-minute film, but they managed to save the second series. And that was all kind of a triumph of uh, over-adversity. And actually, yeah, I was just going to say, why why the change between the lengths of the episodes? But yeah, you've just explained it there. And actually, that really worked. I've seen, uh, Love Soup is something I have on DVD. It's a great yeah, it's series. Great, uh, it's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sadly sort of slightly underrated. But of course, the other thing was that Sheridan Smith 
who was um, you know, a very young actress in those days, had, uh, was someone else that Verity had spotted. And, uh, and then David Renwick took her into Jonathan Creek. Of course he did, yeah. In fact, Love Soup, those three girls working behind that counter, yeah. is just another example of Verity Lambert. Absolutely. Or people working for Verity Lambert, absolutely. getting the casting absolutely spot absolutely. on. Absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating that, you know, she, right up to the very end, she had a finger on the pulse in terms of talent. Yeah. What's the other one? Is um, Montserrat... I'm oh, going to say, I was going to say the name of the opera singer, so I'm not going to embarrass yeah, myself. Yeah, no, I, that's the one I've got As in my head. Imagine, she's great I wish as I well. Had a, I wish I had a brain like IMDb, but yeah. sadly, the sheer gallery of people that, that Verity worked with over the years is, you know, extraordinary. Huge, yeah. Her address book, which was lent to me by her one of her former PAs, is a, it kind of could be published in its own right. It's enormous, and everyone who's everyone is in that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, look, she starts with Doctor Who and she ends more or less with Jonathan Creek. And she has gone from an unusual success at the start that, in retrospect, looks like dynamite from the off. Except, of course, it isn't. It takes a huge amount of work to get it to be that dynamite. And she ends up with something like Jonathan Creek that, <clears throat> again, on paper, looks like such an odd idea. Well, she didn't hear it. I mean, I ought to say that she didn't do the first series of Jonathan Creek. That was, oh, did she uh, not? No, that was done by Susie Belbin. So she inherited ah, right. that. So, um, but kept it thriving for several series. So, but it's an extraordinary end to her career to see her right up at the top in television there again. Because you know, Jonathan Creek, it was kind of a sensation, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I think the thing is, the truth is that she wasn't really up up at the top by that point. She'd gone back to being a jobbing for hire producer. I mean, her, she'd more or less wrapped up Cinema Verity because after El Dorado, they did struggle. And although they did do some other programs, eventually she had to downsize. Yeah. And so good Jonathan Creek, in some respects, you could say was a step back in terms of going back to being a kind of gun for hire. But she loved being at the coalface. I mean, she could have carried on being an exec, no doubt, had she wanted to, those opportunities were, were around. But she just loved being, getting her hands dirty and being on the set and being in the edit and working with writers. You know, that was what, what made it, made her tick. And so I think, I think she did find it difficult the way TV had changed and where there were sort of 15 committees to make decisions and so on. But she motored on and she just got on with it and sucked it up. Um, and she loved being, you know, at the helm of, of a, of a show. That was going to be what I was just about to ask, actually, but you've answered it. I was going to say she, she strikes me ultimately as somebody who really likes to be involved in the work and. Yes. Yeah, and she wanted to work, she wanted to work with the create, with, with creative people. She didn't want to be in an office cut off from, you know, the writers and the actors and the, you know, she was, she was very hands on in that sense. Yeah. Well, Richard, before you go then, <clears throat> you'd better let us know a little bit more about this book where we can read a whole lot more about all the things we've just been talking about. Yeah, well, the book is, uh, the best bet, if you want to get hold of the book, is to go directly to the Milk website. Um, as W-M-I-W-K, um, because A, it's cheaper there, and they're very good in terms of getting the books out quickly. Very um, good at that. The, yeah. um, no, they do care about that, which is important. Um, and the book has 
32 pages of colour and black and white photographs, mainly from Verity's own collection. Uh, and I've just been flicking through those and, you know, many, if not all of them, are things that I don't think people will have seen before. Well, hopefully not. I mean, there are also, I hope, we chose pictures to show her kind of vivacity and personality as well as yeah. her, as well as the professional triumphs and stuff. Yeah, There's a lovely one of her in the Doctor Who production office with her sort of head in her hands, um, which was uh, yeah. lent to me by one of her secretaries. I mean, it's quite interesting that she had very good relationships with all her PAs over the years. And, um, uh, you know, that, that she kept this photo for, you know, the best part of 50 years. But it is a characteristic Verity pose, you know, and, and I think it's... It's a wonderful, it's one of my favourites in the whole book. But there's, the book is, um, you know, is, is, as I say, it's a bit of a weighty tome. So if you, if you remember, the John Nathan Turner book wasn't slim, but this one's even bigger. Oh, but, but like the John Nathan Turner book, I've been flicking through it, like the non, John Nathan Turner book, it's not a difficult read. It's not, because sometimes well, you, <laughs> well, no, but I mean, sometimes you look at a biography and, or any kind of a book, really, and it just, it looks very heavy. This yeah. is not a heavy read. Oh, no, no, no. It's a, a long book, but it's very light read and a very easy read. And a very, and I'm about to get into it because obviously it's only just come out, so I've not read it yet, but it looks like it's also going to be an extremely fascinating read. Well, you must let me know when you've, when you've actually managed to go through it, um, whether, which bits connected with you and which bit you know because i mean hopefully there'll be a lot of stuff that people don't know that's the main thing yeah. you know rather as i approached it i knew some things about verity i knew a few headlines but there was a huge amount to discover yeah absolutely well thanks for coming on richard not at all absolute pleasure lovely to talk to you as oh, it's been great and it's been great actually going through all the rest of her programs as well because as much as i like doctor who it's sometimes nice to go off and talk about other things. Off at it's also fascinating, don't you think, how um, Doctor Who, how there's a connection with so many other shows. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's you know, the thing whether about it's it, yeah. talent or whether it's in style or whatever, there are quite a lot of connections. Or even, in a way, ideas tangentially. Completely. Yeah. Anyway, right. Lovely. I'll let you go. Thanks, well, Richard. Thank you. No, thanks so much. And uh, for the listeners, next week... Oh, next week, um, Lee and Simon and I will be back to talk about a David Tennant story, which you'll hopefully have voted for by now. But until then, I was JR, and we'll speak again soon. 